You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. As we get started here on our summer season, the very first thing we're going to do is touch on one of the issues that was a big topic of concern last year, and that is drought. As folks will recall, we had reports of drought all across the, well, pretty much the western U.S. and certainly into the prairies as well. And that discussion is going to continue, but it's going to look a little bit different this year. Our very first episode here today, we're going to reflect on what's happening with the western drought. It is ongoing. It has intensified as we got into January of this year, as we heard from Virginia Getz. Uh, Later on in some subsequent episodes, we'll give an update on what has happened with the drought uh, throughout the prairies, both on the U.S. side and the Canadian side. And folks that have been kind of monitoring the weather will know that, that we've had quite a bit of beneficial snowfall and rain in the Dakotas, and that is certainly improve things there from a drought perspective. Things are still going to be a little bit dry in parts of Prairie Canada. But today's episode is where we look to the West, talk about the Western drought and how it is progressing, re-intensifying, and what it will mean for waterfowl both during the breeding season and then potentially into the fall. There's some pretty uh, pretty concerning issues that are, that are emerging in certain areas out West. And to help us with this discussion on this episode is a person who knows that issue very well, Dr. Mark Petrie. Dr. Unlimited's Director of Conservation Planning for the Western Region. And it just so happens that Mark is here in studio with us today. He came back to Memphis for a meeting and we took the opportunity to bring him in studio and said, hey, give us an update on what's happening out there in the the Western U.S. uh, drought-wise. So, Mark, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Michael. 
So Mark, I guess the first thing that I want to do is is try to remind people that when we talk about drought in the Western U.S., it's a little different from what we spoke about often last year in terms of drought in the prairie pothole region. With drought in, in the prairies being part of the natural cycle, it's necessary every now and then to recycle those wetland, those nutrients in the wetlands to rejuvenate those wetlands. Whereas in the West, the type of drought that we're talking about is, is a bit different. It's not that rejuvenating process that we're talking about. There are a lot of other issues going on here in the Western U.S. And, and that's one of the things that we kind of want to talk about is what's the status of that drought and what are some of the things that are influencing it? And, and it really starts whenever I was looking into this with a discussion about snowpack. As I looked at a series of watersheds in the Sierra Nevadas at the uh, percent of normal snowpack for those particular watersheds, if I averaged it out, it would be somewhere around 30% of normal in terms of that, that snowpack. And that's a big issue of, as, in terms of what's driving the drought as we're seeing it there in, in the Western U.S. So can you pick up from there, Mark, and just Give us an update on what you're seeing with regard to drought uh, there throughout the important regions in the western U.S. Sure. Well, actually, we, we got off to a pretty strong start um, from a snowpack standpoint. Uh, really, through December, things were looking pretty good. Kind of the snowpacks, I think, were on track uh, to actually kind of be above normal. Of course, they need to be well above normal to kind of get us out of the drought. But after December, things kind of stopped. Precipitation stopped, snow stopped, and um, those snowpacks have um, kind of fallen off. They're now below average, as you said, uh, <clears throat> throughout much of the West. And, of course, some of our most important wetland systems in the West are snowpack-driven. So as those snowpacks go, so do the wetlands. And unfortunately, um, they haven't recovered near enough to kind of hoist us out of the drought. So if anything, things are looking even more grim um, this time uh, than they did this time last year. Now, recently, there was a little bit of a, of a snow event that moved through uh, some system come in from the Pacific coast, but I don't believe we expect that to have much of a measurable um, effect, any kind of a relief, right? Not, not to my knowledge, Mike. Um, I, in, in, in all honesty, yes, we did get some snow. I didn't follow too closely how much that amounted to in the Sierra Nevadas, um, but my guess is it wasn't nearly enough to kind of reverse where we are in the drought. And so for people that may need a bit of orientation to waterfowl habitats there in the western U.S., uh, provide that for us. It's the western, the Pacific Flyway, waterfowl habitats in the Pacific Flyway are, uh, occur in some fairly distinct areas. And yep. so kind of line that out for people that, that may not, uh, may have missed some of our, our past episodes where we discussed some of these areas or who may not be necessarily as familiar with it. But where do we find our waterfowl in the western U.S., in the, the Pacific Flyway, uh, and, and and kind of what's the significance of that for the for where we choose to work? Sure. Well, at least in the U.S. portion of the Pacific Flyway, outside of the breeding season, you know, we have three really, really important landscapes. Uh, we have the Central Valley of California. We have the Great Salt Lake. And we have what I call Southern Oregon, Northeastern California, what we call shorthand Sonic. Um, and kind of the, the the jewel of Sonic, if you are, are the Klamath Basin refuges, in particular Lower Klamath and Tule Lake National Wildlife refuges. But really, probably about 70% of our waterfowl between, oh, September and May occur in those three landscapes. And unfortunately, that's where the, that's where the drought is concentrated within those three landscapes. 
so what what can you tell us about the way things are unfolding in those in those three landscapes? I know it's dry, but any kind of references that you can provide. For example, I've I read an article here recently talking about Tule Lake is actually going dry. They're removing some of the endangered suckers that we've talked about on previous episodes with a variety of guests. And then, of course, the other question is going to be like, what does it mean for agricultural producers? What does it mean for rice production in the Central Valley? Kind of walk us through that to the extent that you understand it. Um, because the things that are, I mean, people are making decisions and have made decisions already on what the drought is going to mean for various activities this spring this summer, and then already into the fall. So yeah, so yeah, let's just start with the Klamath. What are you hearing about kind of specific impacts there? Sure. In the Klamath Basin, and again, I'll, I'll talk specifically about Tule Lake and Lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge, which traditionally have kind of been, you know, the crown jewels of the Klamath Basin, if you will, and give you a little bit of perspective. You know, in the 1950s, um, four to five million birds uh, were commonly counted there in the fall. So they, these were probably the most important refuges in the entire United States, if not the entire world, for migrating and wintering waterfowl. Um, in kind of a normal water year, they would have somewhere around forty to 45,000 acres of wetlands on the two refuges together. Uh, this year or this coming fall, it'll be no surprise if there's no water on either refuge, that they're completely dry. No water, no water. No water. And, and we're not expecting water to be available for wetland management this, this spring, this summer, anything of that nature? If, if we are, it'll be, you know, it'll be 1,000 acres, maybe 1,500 acres um, if that happens. Um, but it will be no surprise to me if both refuges are entirely dry. It, it's a heartbreaking thing for people that have seen the glory days of those wetlands, and there's a lot of uncertainty about whether they'll ever see it again. And maybe we can kind of touch on that here towards the, the back end of it. But, uh, and, and it's not just the wetlands that are affected. What does it mean for agricultural producers in that, in that region? Well, those two refuges exist in the larger context of what we call the Klamath Basin Irrigation Project, which, was, which is, irrigates about 230,000 acres of uh, prime agricultural land. And, and the project really has been with us since about 1905, homesteaded by a lot of veterans of the First World War, Second World War. Uh, if my memory serves me correct, you know, for that irrigation project, for those 230,000 acres to be properly and fully irrigated requires four to 500,000 acre feet of water. Um, I think the project might get 50,000 acres of water, acre feet of water this year. Um, so it is suffering right along, obviously, with the refuges. Really, as, as agricultural goes, so does the refuges. What about the, what about Salt Lake? Um, I know that area is also suffering from, the, the Great Salt Lake is suffering from declining water levels. Um, I don't know if you had any read on kind of how waterfowl populations were there this past uh, winter, but just where are we in, in that landscape uh, in this sort of same context. Sure. Well, of course, the Great Salt Lake is, you know, <clears throat> dependent on snowmelt as well. And it the snowpack there had got off to a decent start too, and like these other western snowpacks um, fell off. Last year, I believe, the Great Salt Lake reached its lowest level in recorded history. And I want to say they began recording lake levels um, in the Great Salt Lake mid-1800s, I think something like that, so a long historical record. I've heard it said that they expect maybe that record to be again broken this year. So it would again kind of reach a, a historic low below what we saw last year. And there's 
There's a couple of consequences of that. When you look at the lake from a waterfowl standpoint, we have managed wetlands and we have unmanaged wetlands. And managed wetlands are typically, you know, state and federal areas or managed duck clubs. I want to say, Mike, that there are about 160,000 acres of um, managed wetlands in there. They tend to have kind of more reliable water supplies. I believe last year we were looking at maybe a third of those not having water. I, I don't know how that ultimately panned out. I never followed up on that. Um, but there are also these unmanaged wetlands that kind of lay outside the levees, lay outside the management levees. And um, I want to say there's about 350,000 acres of those. And most of those were expected to be dry because those are completely dependent on fluctuating lake levels. And with the lake being so dry, most of those unmanaged wetlands have, were expected to be dry. And uh, one, of the, one of the consequences of that is, is although those areas are less hunted, there are also areas that, you know, birds go to kind of avoid hunting disturbance. And if those areas aren't there, those birds are probably not likely to stay around the lake as long as they traditionally would have. They act a, they act a bit like a refuge, I suppose. Um, and that was what uh, some people were predicting last year would happen. And I believe that did, that prediction did pan out at some level. Um, but again, I would think that this year we're probably looking at similar levels where you're going to have a reduction in probably managed wetland habitat, but it won't be near to the degree of these unmanaged habitats, which are completely dependent on lake levels. And how many, how much area of managed wetlands did you say were in that area? I think about 160,000 acres. 160,000. That's... That's, it's a, that's it's a good, good amount. You know, this this kind of brings us to another topic about the West, which is related to drought, at least in an indirect way. If you look at if you look at these three landscapes, whether it's the Central Valley, the Great Salt Lake, or or Klamath, our birds are not only occurring in you know most of the birds are not only occurring in these kind of drought prone landscapes, but they are relying very very heavily on what I'll just call man, either managed wetlands or managed agricultural habitats. So. A managed agricultural habitat would be a winter flooded rice field, for example. The problem, and not the problem, but but the difficulty there is, is that all of those habitats rely on annual deliveries of surface water. So you have to get water to those wetlands or those agricultural habitats every year. It's not like a natural wetland where, you know, you can rely on precipitation, et cetera, or the coastal habitats, which you just rely on the tides. You have to physically commit to getting water to those spaces. And that becomes very, very difficult in a drought. Um, they're not drought-proof, like some of our, you know, many of You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next, generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here.
We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Our wetlands and say the MAV would consider drought proof. Well, we don't, we have very few of those in the West. And that takes us to the other, the third region of, of importance out there, the Central Valley. And you referenced the, the, the key wetlands there, both from, a, from rice, rice fields, winter flooded rice fields, as well as managed wetlands in the Central Valley. Talk to us about where we are with forecasts for water availability for agricultural production, rice production, as well as wetland management in the Central Valley, which both the, the Sacramento Valley in the north and San Joaquin Valley to the south. Sure. And that is a good way to divide it because on that now north-south basis, Sac, and Sac Valley in the north, San Joaquin Valley in the south, because there are kind of the north-south differences in how the drought is playing out. In the Sacramento Valley, um, typically we have about you know, 350,000 acres of winter flooded rice and about 70,000 acres of managed wetlands. And in the Sac Valley, we usually plant, farmers usually plant about 540,000 acres of rice and about 325, 340,000 of acres of those are actually flooded, you know, for ducks. Probably the worst forecast I've heard for planted rice acreage of that 540,000 acres, we may see somewhere around 325,000, maybe 350,000 go unplanted um, because they are relying, a lot of those rice producers are relying on reservoirs that are so far below normal levels that the water is simply not going to be there to grow rice. A lot of that's going to depend on on-farm on decisions about how they use what little water they get. Um, so it'll be a while to see those numbers play out. But I think in terms of the impact on the rice industry, we've never seen anything like this in terms of drought. Maybe the mid-1970s, but... That was a long time ago, but I think the impact on the rice industry is going to be especially severe this year. And in the Sac Valley, uh, ducks rely on about 70% of their of rice to get their food for their food. So that's not an insignificant effect. And so what we're talking about referencing here would, of course, have really important implications for waterfowl during fall and winter. There's also a breeding component here that we're going to, we're going to get to here in a second. But what about water for management of intensively managed wetlands? Sure. I'm, I'm those are likely going to be curtailed to a great degree yeah, as well. Yeah, they are. Um, again, I think we have about 70,000 acres of managed wetlands in the Sac Valley. Of course, that's a combination of most of those are actually private duck clubs, but there's also um, large tracts of publicly managed wetlands in both federal and state areas there too. The most recent number I've heard is those areas are looking at maybe 25% of less of normal water supplies. 25% below normal? 25, or 25% of normal. 25% of normal. Wow. So, so, 70, so it, across the board, it's sounding like about a 70%, 70, 75% decline in water resource availability as well as, and then translate that to approximately the same amount yes. uh, of a decline in terms of habitat. Yeah, because uh, it, depending on where, you're, where you are in the valley, in the central valley, depending on what water source you're tied to, which is really, you know, very dependent on the uh, either the river or the... Or the um, or the dam or the reservoir you're tied to, um, they're in different places. And the Sac Valley happens to be tied to some reservoirs that are in especially poor shape. And so whether you're growing rice or whether you're managing a wetland, you're going to feel the effects of that this fall. Um, things are better, a little better as you go south into the San Joaquin Valley, where the most recent estimates are about 75% of normal 
but there when you talk to when you talk to, and and most of that is 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 private duck clubs but of course public wetlands as well and they're going to get a reduced amount of water um, and and probably what a lot of them will do is instead of putting that water they'll be able to put that water out anytime they want during the course of the duck season a lot of them will probably choose to put it out later in the duck season, like December, because it's it, that's a very warm part of the world, even in the early fall. And if they're getting a limited amount of water, they'll be reluctant to put it out there when a lot of it will evaporate and maybe there are not a lot of birds around yet. So a lot of those wetlands may may not hold water until we get into December because that's when the that's when they're choosing to use or take their water. What about water for management of those wetlands during spring and summer? It's not like the Central Valley is not a summer precipitation no area. It's not driven by by spring summer precipitation. Not at all. So you it's not a it's not a situation where you can rely on that. And I know from having worked there for a little while there was there were these specific types of wetlands called reverse cycle wetlands where they flood them in the spring and provide breeding habitat for waterfowl, nesting waterfowl, and all sorts of other wetland-dependent birds. And then a lot of those duck clubs would pull irrigation water from the canals to grow the food that they would subsequently flood for uh, to provide uh, foraging habitat during winter. What about availability of water for that type of spring-summer activity? Right. And, and of course, that was driven by the fact that the majority of the mallards that are harvested in California are actually raised in California, somewhere probably between 60 and 70 percent. So local mallard production has, you know, assumed a very high level of importance to Central Valley hunters over the last few decades. And so there's a real incentive to provide provide breeding habitat essentially during spring and summer, which is what that reverse cycle wetland program was aimed at. The problem is, is that, is that not only in, in drought times like we're experiencing now, but just overall, really over the last 20 or 30 years, as water has become less available, regardless of whether we're in a drought situation or not, it's harder to find summer water. That's when the demand, of course, on water is often the highest, whether it's an urban demand, whether it's an irrigation demand, whether it's demand for fish. And so obtaining that summer water for those breeding programs has become progressively more difficult. And we've seen that in terms of a decline in what we would call these semi-permanent or permanent wetlands, where I think... Um, you know, probably in the early 1990s, we probably had somewhere around 25,000, maybe mm-hmm. 30,000 acres of that. We probably only have half or less of that wow. now. And that's really a trend that we're seeing throughout the West. Um, there's been some really neat work um, done out of the University of Montana where they've demonstrated that if you look across the West, a lot of what used to be semi-permanent wetlands or more permanently flooded wetlands 30 years ago are now temporary or seasonal wetlands today. They're they're still getting water, but they're getting water for a shorter period of the time of the year or less water, and they've transitioned to some more temporary habitats. And that's just a case of there not being a lot of water around. Um, so it's it's a chronic problem really throughout the West. So if I were to travel to the West this spring or summer, and if I were to go back to some of those locations on, let's say, Los Banas Wildlife Management Area uh, that at 15, 20 years ago, were these spring, summer inundated wetlands they're likely to be dry this year? I think a lot of them would be, yeah. And then, and are they being managed as upland habitat for other wildlife or are they just kind of sitting idle or do do you know? I'm trying to get a picture of what I would see if I went back out there. I I really don't know. Of course, it probably, it it varies by refuge and and the water supply that that refuge has. And of course, you know, the different objectives of that refuge. Um, But certainly refuges that were providing more of that spring, summer habitat 
two, three decades ago, I have to believe there's less of that on the ground because they're facing the same water challenges as private landowners. The study that I worked on there was was investigating mallard brood use of those reverse cycle wetlands. And I mean, they're beautiful, beautiful, lush wetlands with, with robust emergent vegetation provided excellent cover for ducklings. Uh, coyotes still found a way to get a few of those ducklings, as did bullfrogs and everything else. But I, I remember just being super impressed at, at the productivity of those wetlands. And in, to, in my mind's eye right now, I'm thinking if I were to go back, they're parched, they're brown, they're not growing and, you know, and not, not providing any of that imp- those important wetlands. So, so yeah, there is a, there's an effect on breeding waterfowl production. No doubt we talked about that last year. And that's going to be the case across all three of these landscapes, certainly the Central Valley, the Klamath. Absolutely. Um, probably also the the uh, Salt Lake, Great Salt Lake. At some level, yeah. And then we kind of carry forward to those, it, you're, you're, comp- you're constraining local production and then you're constraining the production of food resources, either through rice or through these intensively managed wetlands. And then it's kind of like a layering on of negative things where once you get to the fall and winter, you're not sure how much water is going to be available for that flooding, uh, for the for the uh, yeah the flooding of those wetlands, for the management of those wetlands, whether it be these, these intensively managed impoundments or the harvested rice fields, what rice is in production. Um, and that takes us back to sort of a position where we were last fall. You know, we were fretting, the lack of water that was going to be available for duck clubs and for the flooding of, of harvested rice. And as we heard from some of our guests last year, the the faucet turned on it like did. the first weekend of the season. So you and I talked about this here earlier in that right here we sit right now in, in early spring and we're not likely to see a great increase in the amount of snowpack between now and when things start melting and water comes down and fills those those reservoirs and is available for irrigation or, or, or wetland management. What we have right now is likely what we're going to be stuck with throughout the spring and summer, right? And probably into early fall at least. So we can talk about the likely impacts of that type of water situation up to that point. But then once we get to fall, it's it turns into a bit of a... Um, a bit of an unknown. Fair? Well, I think we can, yes, it, depending on what area you're talking about, I think um, the Klamath Basin refuges are going to be dry. There, there's simply not much that can happen because they're snowpack-fed systems there's, and, and you don't get a lot of precipitation in that part of the so world. So even in fall and winter, we don't see precipitation coming to those areas the way we do. Right. I think the table is set in the Klamath Basin. Um, to a large degree, probably set in the Great Salt Lake as well. Um, so those systems are going to be, I think you could predict that they're going to be in rough shape this fall and that will continue throughout the winter. Central Valley is a little bit of a different beast because the Central Valley can get these, you know, essentially, what do they call them, atmospheric rivers, yeah. which is what happened last year. And I think we had about 10 inches of rain in late October, early November, which of course com- completely reverses the picture there. And that that those kind of events aren't going to make aren't likely to happen in the Klamath Basin or Great Salt Lake, or even if they were, it wouldn't have the effect that it can almost instantaneously in the Central Valley. The Central Valley is such a highly managed system that if you get that kind of deluge, you can actually use some of that management infrastructure to to rapidly improve things, right? Now there's water. Now you have the management infrastructure to take advantage of it, and suddenly the Central Valley is a much wetter place than it was three days ago. 
So that could definitely change the picture. What probably won't change, though, is the fact that the rice base is, you know, decimated during this year, and that's that's going to be all fallow land. And so there's no growing rice on that land, and there's no really improving it to a great degree. So that is that part of the table has been set. But you're correct. You can get winter. You can get that fall precipitation or precipitation during any time, you know, during the hunting season or after that can dramatically change the picture there. And so that takes us naturally to the question that that everyone has, and I know you love it whenever I ask you this question. So. What are the birds going to do? <laughs> Where do they go? We had this conversation last year whenever we were talking about the likely effects of a dry Klamath Basin. Uh, and, you know, you can speculate that, well, if there's not a lot of water there, the birds aren't going to hang around for very long. You're probably going to see an accelerated migration through that region. Uh, that's likely to be repeated this year. That certainly seems fair. But then whenever we start speculating about what's going to happen once those birds arrive in this in the Central Valley of California, it gets to this issue of things can change overnight, as we've seen on multiple in multiple years. Uh, so I won't we won't pin you down and ask you to um, uh, to tell us what the birds are going to do. But what I will ask you to do is talk about the way the birds are adapted to that type of system. You know, drought is not a new thing for the Western U.S., and I know that's something that you talk about uh, a great deal. So, like, what do we, what would be some of the outlets for these birds? Would we expect them to go to Mexico? Would we expect them to um, seek out other wetland complexes uh, in other regions? Or do we not know? And, And is there anything that we're setting up to do as we get into fall and winter to kind of help answer some of those questions? Well, I think last year, uh, my understanding, at least talking to some hunters uh, in the Central Valley, was there was an early push of birds that presumably came from a dry Klamath Basin. And um, so there were more birds in the Central Valley earlier on than there traditionally was. That was my sense talking to some folks. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, if the Central Valley had remained dry, um, then those birds probably at some point would have been faced with a choice after that once they got to the valley. But of course, we had that big event and kind of reversed the situation in the Central Valley. So I think despite birds getting there early, um, they were able to do fine, you know, um, throughout the rest of the winter, if you will. So that's kind of one answer about what, that's what happened, I think, last year. In terms of your question about, well, what what if that didn't happen or what do the birds ultimately have to do? Yes, I suspect some go to do go to Mexico, but if I'm being perfectly honest with you, can't answer that question very well. And that's prompted us to to look to take a look this year at what the answer to that question might be. And we're not going to be able to do it across the entire flyway, but what we are proposing to do with our with our state and federal partners is we're going to take a look at we know this we know that Klamath Basin is going to be dry. Uh, we're really interested. We know that there's a good chance that the Sacramento Valley is going to be very, very dry too. And there's not much distance between those two locations. I think what we're going to do is we're going to try and survey that area, that general geography early fall to see where the birds are showing up. Where, If, if they don't have these traditional options, well, where are they? We're talking about some type of aerial waterfowl Absolutely. survey. Yeah, we're talking probably done, you know, for weekly, maybe over a month or two, you know, because one survey won't do it, to get a better sense of how these birds are responding to drought in this particular area, you know, which are two of the most severest impacted by the drought. I think what, what that'll help is it'll, it'll help answer your question a bit too, but it'll tell us, hey, what areas of the, what areas are especially important in the drought? Where are birds, what are they doing? Where, what areas are they seeking out? And I think there's going to be some pretty important conservation implications for that because we may be identifying some areas that really, really weren't on our radar screen, 
But because they have water during these extreme drought conditions, which undoubtedly will repeat themselves at some point, we can pay more conservation attention to them and make sure that they are in place for the next drought as well. So I think it's going to be produce a bit of a shift in maybe our conservation emphasis to, to, to begin taking a look at some areas that maybe we hadn't paid or hadn't put as much importance on uh, as we had these traditional areas. That's a great segue to sort of the what I wanted to close with is just talking about what Ducks Unlimited is doing in response to this. And we can we could touch on multiple aspects of, of DU's work. You've already talked about some of the um, investments in science that we're going to be contributing to if we consider you know, data collection through those aerial surveys to be some sort of a scientific endeavor to, to figure out what's happening under these situations. But then also from a conservation program perspective, from a policy perspective, what can you tell our listeners um, that would be, that they would want to know that we think is important for them to know about how we as an organization are responding to this because it's it's something that we don't necessarily expect to to turn around next year. It's not like we think this is necessarily a flash in the pan given the trajectory of 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 a reduced snowpack over the long term and the trajectory of some of the climate uh, uh, metrics that we're seeing. We don't necessarily expect this to turn around and, and return to the glory days that we saw that you, you referenced. What can you tell our listeners that, that they would want to know about how DU is responding to this both now and then kind of looking forward? It's a big, sure. qu- big question, I know, but... Right, and, and, and there's a lot of, there is, you know, I'd be lying if I t- didn't tell you that there's some uncertainty within Ducks Unlimited about what we should be doing going forward too. Uh, when, when you find yourself in the middle of a drought like this, there's not a tremendous amount you can do. Um, I think a lot of our focus while we're actually in the drought is to communicate the effects of that drought. And so whether that's to our members, whether that's to policymakers, but just convey those, you know, the effects of the drought, the damage it's doing, chronicle all that, document it, whether that's through science, whether it's through our communication efforts, whether that's talking to you today here over this table. So that's some of the things you can do in terms of when you find yourself in the middle of a drought, you know. There's no quick fixes you know, right now. But looking forward, I think I think we're starting to maybe recognize some things that what drought has done is, and we've had, you know, several years of drought over the last decade, it begins to expose a lot of the vulnerabilities we have here in the West. And the reality is that some of our most important landscapes are highly vulnerable to drought. And we need to we need to we need to build resiliency into those landscapes to the degree that that's possible. But I think what we also have to begin looking at is hey, where are those areas that continue to have water for whatever reason, good water rights, they're associated with fairly rigorous snowpacks, whatever the reason might be. I think we have to understand where those areas are and begin to maybe attach more importance to them and make sure that from a conservation standpoint, they're either expanded or they're protected or they're enhanced um, because it may be going forward, they they play a disproportionate role in supporting waterfowl in the West. Um, I mean, I don't want to play, paint too bleak a picture, but some of these water challenges are extreme. And I think that um, building kind of resiliency into the system outside of these areas in some cases is going to be necessary, I think, going forward. And I think so, you know, this year trying to understand how the birds are redistributing themselves in maybe parts of the landscape that historically weren't all that important, but now have become uh, disproportionately more important. We're going to have to start understanding those things and build conservation programs around some of that stuff. Hey, where is the reliable water? And let's make sure we understand where that is and we target that from a conservation standpoint. This concept of building resilience into our conservation programs is not restricted 
restricted to the West either. When you think about the change that's occurring all across North America, quite frankly, and all across the globe, a lot of it is driven by, by changing climate, but a lot of it is also driven by land use practices that have changed through the years and uh, change in waterfowl distributions, change in wetland abundance, change in precipitation patterns, change in precipitation frequencies. All of these things are intersecting waterfowl, waterfowl habitats. And that's something that it's it's difficult. Nobody likes to work within an environment where you can't predict what's going to happen, right? And so we're certainly seeing that in the West with drought. We're seeing it on the prairies with drought. Both of those areas have existed for for millennia in the presence of drought. That doesn't make it any easier for us to figure out solutions to that reality, though. So this idea of change and our ability to incorporate or to develop conservation programs that are adaptable to that that change is is something that we that we're all wrestling with, and we're going to try to figure out. It doesn't mean, especially as it relates to the West, that we're walking away from any of these areas. Oh, no, There's still great work to be done in in Sonic, uh, in the in the Klamath Basin, and we're going to continue on with some of those projects. We're going to have to be thoughtful about. Uh, and creative about some of those projects and work where we can. And as you said, uh, um, the idea of trying to identify additional areas that that can provide us some of that redundancy and some of that resiliency is, a, is an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's the strategy going forward. You know, when I started my career 25 years ago, I naively thought, hey, there's these biological finish lines out there. We need to identify what these biological finish lines are, and then we need to cross them, and it's all good. Now I've come to realize, having more experience, that conservation is a running battle, and conservation will always be a running battle, and this is just part of it. Mark, that was a, a great way to, to close out this episode. Uh, it's it's challenging. It's It keeps us on our toes, that's for sure. A lot of times it's certainly frustrating, but as you say, there is no... There is no finish line that we're gonna we're gonna get to and then kind of lock things down. It's always always moving, always changing, and, and that's why the work, that's why our, why our investments in scientific information, scientific efforts are always so important. A big part of what we do as an organization, what you and I do in our positions. Uh, but yeah, that's gonna wrap it up here for us on this episode. There's a lot more to talk about with regard to the Western drought. There's a, a ton to speak about with respect to. Uh, drought on the prairies as well, and how those uh, how recent snowstorms have beneficially affected uh, the prairie pothole country, and and so we're going to be covering some of that in some future episodes, and we will touch base with Mark and some of his other colleagues from out west. I am certain throughout the rest of the summer and then into fall, we'll check back in with you and see how things are going, and and really excited to hear about some of that survey work that y'all are going to be uh, supporting out there. So. Uh, great to have you in the studio here with us, Mark. Appreciate your time and uh, look forward to catching up with you again. Thanks, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Mark Petrie, our Director of Conservation Planning for the Western Region. We greatly appreciate him taking time to sit down here, here with us in the studio and share some of his expertise about what's unfolding out West. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does getting these episodes out to y'all. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and for joining us here today and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.
you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 